So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Coming up on this week's show, why Alan Sugar wants your old computer. An amazing new flash card for your Saturn and Dreamcast. And we get the inside story of Streets of Rage 4. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 222, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it is our favourite bit of the week. Just before the weekend, it means another hour-ish of retro gaming chat, talking about all the big retro gaming stories of the week and a bit of an exclusive this week, talking about the biggest retro game around at the moment, the new release of Streets of Rage. Streets of Rage 4 is finally here, and we'll give you our thoughts, and we're going to chat to the developers behind it as well. Now, before we get into that, what a week it's been. Last weekend, we tried something a little bit different, something I'll be honest, we're a little bit nervous about at first, but we did our first patrons-only hangout, and what a success it was. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, me, Dan and Ravi were really worried before that it might only be about 10, 15 minutes long. Like maybe nobody's going to come on. Maybe there's only going to be two <laughs> people there. But we're absolutely blown away. The room was full straight away. People were messaging saying they couldn't get into the room, which we'll try and solve for the next one. But it was absolutely amazing. So thank you so much for making it a great night for us. It was really good fun, actually. We did this whole thing, which was like, give us a tour of your room. So we did the room, but then there was loads of listeners as well. And they gave us tours of their room. And um, I'd just like to thank Falco as well. He was showing us um, Curse of the Rabenstein, which was a new text adventure by Puddlesoft. And it was boxed and it had everything there. And it's amazing to see these kind of old text adventures uh, with as much love as that game had. Yeah, and I think we went on till about, we started at 8pm, went on till about quarter past 10, I think. So we had like two hours, it was really good, you know, cracked a drink, just kicked back and chatting about retro games. And like you said, you know, those those room tours, I've got to say, I think uh, our listeners' rooms actually put us to shame. Yeah, I felt like after we did it, like I just showed off a cute few like Sega Saturn bits and like tried to get into my gaming cupboard, which had a few of my wife's yoga bits in the way of. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, I was like hitting myself, oh, I could have shown him this and shown him that. But it wasn't about that. For me, it was about, you know, seeing everybody else's fantastic rooms as well. Absolutely. So we're going to make this a regular thing for our patrons. We're going to do another one as well. We did get a few people because we kind of announced it on the Friday, then did it on Sunday. It was such a laugh. We're definitely going to do it again. So we're going to make this a regular thing once a month. We'll do a patrons hangout where we all just get together, have a bit of a chat and just show off our retro collections and stuff. So if you're a patron, the next one is coming up on Sunday, the 17th of May at 8pm UK time. So of course, we'll put all the details and the link in the uh, patron so you can check it out on there. And if you're not a patron, all the details coming up on how you can get involved and uh, help support this show and hang out with us all once a month uh, for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month. It's not very much. Now, of course, we have been really excited to talk about this. Joe, Ravi, how difficult has it been keeping Stum 
about this game that we've had for like, what, two weeks now? I have been absolutely dying. So just to put a little bit of context to it. So uh, the guys who have been making Streets of Rage 4 over at uh, Dotamu, uh, they very, very kindly gave us all some codes to play Streets of Rage 4 about two weeks ago now. And Dan and Ravi got on a day before me on PC before I got my PS4 code. And oh my God, what a game. It's absolutely amazing. I've completed it three times already. And it's such an honor to play it and then interview and talk, you know, talk to the guys who made the game as well because of I'm absolutely blown away by it it's lived up to its expectations now we are well, going to be joined by the developers of streets of rage 4 cyril imbert from dot is the ceo and ben fiquay who's the artist on the game as well we're going to get kind of the story about where this has come from and how they managed to get a sequel out to a game that you know the last installment was 26 years ago how hyped have we been? You know, everyone's been begging for a new Streets of Rage game since the mid-90s. Yeah, you know, there's always been these rumours and all these stories about, like, how, like, Fighting Force was meant to be Streets of Rage 4, and then, it, you know, it, it moved to N64 or PlayStation and stuff like that, and it just didn't happen. So, you know, it, it was just so cool to find out and hear how, like, you know, Sega finally agreed, like, yeah, you know what, let's do it, let's do the licence, let's get the original, you know, original concept arts out, let's get the original musicians in and stuff like that. It's going to be great to hear an interview as well with Dan and Joe because, Dan, you couldn't have done this interview without getting Joe on. No, see, Joe is working from home at the moment, obviously, <laughs> and he's kind of got a little window. We had to do it like during your lunch break, didn't we? Like, yeah, we, we did it on my lunch break from work, um, and I was like dual wielding laptops. So I had my laptop, my work laptop, on the couch, and then I, <laughs> then I had, I guess, my other work laptop uh, on my computer. But uh, no, we got it in just in. Now, the game did come out last night at the time the show will come out. It comes out on April 30th on PC, PS4, Switch, Xbox One. And uh, we've actually had it, like you said then, for about two weeks now. We're under embargo. We couldn't talk about it or anything, but obviously the embargo's lifted now. So let's get a bit of a mini review. Ravi, what did you think? Um, I really liked it. I was not a fan of the new music, I'm afraid. But I do oh, really? like... Yeah, I felt it was very kind of aimed at the at the dubstep youth generation rather than uh the kind of synthy stuff but that's just me yeah. being like a, a sound engineer and a nerd um the, and an alpha. The, the, yeah the best thing <laughs> i liked about it was the interactivity and levels so like you know the cars smashing into stuff the extra elements that kind of brought it out of that just a side scrolling beat em up yeah because the side scrolling beat em ups kind of like died because of they were so rep- repetitive but I think what's great about this is, like you said, you know, there's, you know, all that kind of like stage interaction stuff that makes it not repetitive, if that makes sense. And I love the fact there's so many nods to the original game in there. I mean, that was one of the things when I watched all the the early trailers, I was a bit like, is it going to have that feel? And I think for me, that was the most important thing, that it does feel like a Streets of Rage game, even with the upgraded HD graphics. I mean, there's still, you can play that game and every now and then, you know, you'll, you'll get a certain little nod back to the originals and it'll really like, the nostalgia will be laid on really thick. Well, I, I, think... I could just uh, change the soundtrack to the old ones. <laughs> you know, yeah, having yeah, all those old elements were great. I was going to say, if you're not a fan of the new, because it is very dubstep and kind of like there's some trancey and dance kind of uh, songs in there as well. I enjoyed them personally. But yeah, if you like Ravi and you don't enjoy it, you can just switch it back to Streets of Rage 1 or 2. <laughs> and I think that's one thing they went for with this game. I mean, you'll hear more in the interview that's coming up soon. They wanted, obviously, to please fans of the original, but also the aim of the game is to kind of get new fans involved as well, people that may not have played the original games back in the 90s. Totally. And I guess like that old sound chip as well was the Mega Drive. It was that gritty gritty kind of sound and they no longer have that so there's probably no need for that you know one thing i really loved as well is the fact that these kind of games bring back like couch gaming so no joe you you actually played it through your missus 
Yeah, so luckily the PS4 version uh, had the two-player enabled on it. So me and my missus blast through it. I played it myself the first time on normal and popped it on easy for her. And she was a little bit like, oh, I'm going to do really bad. I'm going to keep dying. But actually it was, you know, it was perfect for her. She did really well. And it really brought back, like you say, that couch gaming. And what I absolutely loved about it, which I forgot because it is in the trailer, is it is actually four player as well. So I got her, you know, to press start to join in or whatever it is. And then it was like for player three to press start as well. And I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot it's four player. So I cannot wait for the three of us to get together and play this on three player. (laughs) Ravi and I have got it on PC. You've got it on PS4. So we haven't been able to have a game all together yet. Obviously not hanging out at the moment. Um, But yeah, I think now that it is going to be available on all platforms when the show comes out. Obviously, Joe, you're going to trounce us all. Oh yeah, absolutely. 100%. (laughs) Yeah, I think I got to like the second boss and then uh, my missus came in like, oh, give me a go that then. Yeah, I died. So I, bl- I blame Samantha. Um, I would have died probably there anyway. But yeah, it is such an impressive game. And like you said, I think bringing out any new installment in a franchise that's been dormant for like 26 years, it's always going to be a difficult thing to do. But in my opinion, they've really pulled this off. Yeah, they've nailed it for sure. So we are going to get the inside story on the making of Streets of Rage 4 with Cyril Imbert from Dotemi, who's the CEO of the company, and Ben Fiquay, who worked on the artwork on the game as well. They're coming up on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we have got some really interesting stories we need to talk about this week. Before we do, let's show a bit of love to our loyal supporter, the amazing Retro Gamer magazine. Now, Retro Gamer are back supporting the Retro Hour podcast again this week. And I'm sure you know the score with Retro Gamer. The only magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. Every month, they give you exclusive access to classic developers, giving you behind-the-scenes stories about those games and the systems that you grew up playing, and also exploring their game library as well and finding out new things that you didn't know about your all-time favourite games. Now, this month, there is some really good stuff in there, including... The inside story on one of the most legendary games of all time, Half-Life. Oh yeah, Half-Life is absolutely amazing. It is one of the most groundbreaking first-person shooters. And the amount of different titles that have spawned from it, if you think about it, Portal came from Half-Life, which was an absolutely amazing game. There's a new VR version of Half-Life, and they've finally completed and released Black Mesa as well. And those two original games as well, I mean, this article here, it's really good. It's kind of an in-depth look at the the Half-Life story from, you know, that original one when Gordon Freeman was taking the train to work and how this game kind of revolutionised gaming and design standards. And, you know, a lot, a lot of what you saw in those original Half-Life games are still in modern games today. And it was just the atmosphere of them. It was like nothing else I'd really played before when I first explored those games. It, it was the game that made Steam worth using, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I also put Valve on the map, didn't it, that game? So there's a big inside look at Half-Life and also at the making of Grand Prix Simulator with the Oliver Twins is in there too. I always love reading stories about the Oliver Twins. Just when you think you've like heard everything from them to come out with like, oh yeah, we've got you know loads more stories to tell. And actually, we saved all the original bits of this game in our attic as well. So <laughs> it's always interesting. And there's a history on wrestling games as well from Tag Team to Def Jam All in this month's edition of Retro Gamer Magazine. Now, we want to give you an amazing offer. If you haven't checked out Retro Gamer for a while, have a look at this. Not only will you get Retro Gamer Magazine through your door, you don't have to go out and get it, but also you will get a free 8-BitDo controller. Now, these are really cool. These are like um, little stylish Bluetooth controllers, 
and they imitate those classic ones like the NES and the Mega Drive. There's an N64 version of it as well and a GameCube style. So not only will you get six months of Retro Gamer magazine and one of these 8-bit dough controllers worth £30 absolutely free, you can check this out right now. You'll be helping out the podcast by doing it. Head to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash rh8bit. So that's myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash rh8bit. Thanks to our good friends at Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Now, Alan Sugar has been in the news again this week. Obviously, we know the new series of The Apprentice is not going ahead this year, but instead, he's found something else to occupy his time. And it turns out that Alan actually wants your old Amstrad. Well, he said uh, he went into Google HQ two years ago, and in the reception was a history of computers centre kind of area. And there, centre stage, was an Amstrad PC 1512. And he's kind of now saying he's loving all the old Amstrad's stuff people are showing him. On Twitter, there's a lot of Amstrad people showing off their collection, showing some of the old software. This has kind of got Alan thinking. And he might want to open an Amstrad museum. Which I think is a really good idea, because obviously... He's kind of moved on, you know. He does lots of different ventures and stuff now as well. But, you know, there were actually... Amstrad have been a pretty revolutionary company over the last few decades. Started doing, um, you know, stereo systems. They were worth £1.2 billion at the peak. And, you know, in this article here that we'll link up in our show notes on the mirror, they kind of compared him to, like, you know, Britain's answer to Steve Jobs as a home computing pioneer. Now, a lot of people might say, you know, obviously, Clive Sinclair, I guess, was kind of the, the British was because he was the inventor. But I suppose, I mean, you can kind of see that, you know, Sugar was a bit of a marketing genius like Steve Jobs was as well. And there was, you know, there there were actually really good selling systems. And as we've seen in recent years with all the new games that are now coming out on the Amstrad CPC machines, they're actually a lot more powerful than we believed at the time. Well, also, he's kind of asking people to show pictures of your old machines. So, he may actually want to purchase them. And, you know, yeah. he's, he's, he's got a bit of spare cash, hasn't he, um, Lord <laughs> Allen? So uh, he might be purchasing them to exhibit in his museum. Which is, I mean, it's kind of sad that he doesn't have any of his old machines anymore by the sounds of it. But, I mean, I imagine a lot of people are going to read this in, like, the main, mainstream media and stuff and be like, oh, I've got one of those in the attic, you know. And then uh, we've all watched The Apprentice with Alan Sugar. It's like, you know, then I guess you name your price and then the, the bartering begins, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, well, I also guess it's um, kind of just going to be the PCs and the computers you're focused on because Amstrad did so much stuff. They had printers, they had stereo systems. I think they even did TVs at one point. I mean, Amstrad didn't, you know, it wasn't always the best quality stuff. Some of their, uh, their home electronics were kind of built very cheap and stacked them high. But I think, you know, it does warrant having an Amstrad museum. I would go visit that. I think it'd be interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that. And obviously, if you have got any uh, old Amstrad gear that you want to want to load off at the moment, rather than putting it on eBay, just tweet Lord Sugar. He'll buy it off you. Uh, now, something <laughs> else that we saw this week that <laughs> I just love, this is so Japanese isn't it? This this video that you sent me. This is Sega, who are now celebrating their 60th anniversary. And they've been making these kind of really wacky off-the-wall videos. So so basically, they've been doing these videos and it's, yeah, 60th anniversary. They're kind of getting around the era of history and they're looking at how to explore that and how to kind of inform the new generation. Now, you remember that old Sega guy who used to be on the adverts it would be like, Sega! You know, Sega. Would, yeah, yeah, that's the Sega guy. Sega to Sanshiro. Well, they've got his son now and they've his placed son. him inside these adverts. But what he's doing is he's kind of in a modern setting and yeah. uh, 
all these kids are like, oh, what's that you've got there? Is that a Switch? And he's like, no, it's a Game Gear. <laughs> and then they're going, oh, what, what, what are those glasses you've got on? Are those sunglasses? No, they're the Sega 3D glasses. And he's got all of the retro kit there. Like, he's got a Saturn. Oh, it's absolutely awesome, this advert. And it's totally bonkers, mad Japanese, like those old Sega adverts. I, I love the way he's wearing a Sega Saturn as a backpack at school as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's been playing too much Typing of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea behind this little kind of skit they've done is that essentially he needs to stop Sega going bankrupt. And yeah, and he's battling kind of <laughs> all these different like you know people at school and these different brands and stuff. So apparently there's going to be more from him. They're going to be making this kind of a little series as we get towards Sega's 60th birthday, which is coming up on the 3rd of June. So um, yeah, it's kind of his mission over the, these next few videos apparently to stop well, Sega in- from going bust. It's interesting to see the Game Gear there as well because Sega really hasn't mentioned much about the Game Gear in a long time. Yeah. And thinking with the mini consoles that they're doing at the moment, hmm, and them saying, oh, is that a Switch? No, it's Sega, Game Gear. You know, that could be something potentially yeah, yeah, that yeah. they might visit. Intra- I mean, they don't really, you know, they, they kind of stay away from like the things which weren't quite as successful. But I guess the Sega, the Sega, uh, blah, blah. I guess the Sega Game Gear wasn't that it wasn't really a flop. It just didn't do as well as the Game Boy. But it's cool that they've got the Game Gear, the 3D glasses, and the Sega Saturn. You know, like free kind of not obscure but not as well known things from Sega. Yeah, they're not going to be re-releasing the 3D glasses. Let's be honest. No, <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing. I'd be first one to buy them. <laughs> Ravi's actually played that before at a show. Oh, I think God, he lasted about 20. So sick afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I love the comments on this article here on Nintendo Life as well. Um, we need a Switch game where you have to go back in time to stop Sega from releasing Sonic 06. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 100%. So there's going to be more of these adverts coming up over the next few weeks. So if you want to check that out, it's definitely worth a watch. It's uh, yeah, completely <laughs> off the wall and mad. Uh, we'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about Sega, um, I love this as well. I mean, you know, we always talk about the fact that having flash carts and stuff is cool because it kind of saves you original media. And, you know, in systems like the Dreamcast, the CD-ROM drives or the GD-ROM drives on those systems are notoriously a bit flaky. And we've all seen Dreamcast where, you know, the, the gears grind on it and the kind of head can't yep. move properly anymore. So it's always good when you get solutions that mean that you don't have to wear out your original hardware. And this is by the guys at Terra Onion. Now, we've talked about their products before, but they've now released this great little... It's essentially a flash cart that emulates CD-ROM images. It's called the MODE, so it stands for Multi-Optical Disk Emulator. And what's really cool about this is that it works with both the Dreamcast and the Saturn. Okay. This is the coolest thing that you've shown me ever because I don't know if you know, but if they rip CDs for the uh, Dreamcast, the CDs, because they're not these GD-ROMs, they're actually damaging the laser even more. So every time you're playing a ripped game or a copied game you're damaging your laser more and more and uh this looks fantastic the fact that it's gonna just be plug and play no soldering and it's kind of gonna save your machine basically keep it operational so for the common man like me what does this actually do you guys tell me because of i'm i'm get, trying to get my head around this right now <laughs> so essentially what you do is you, you put this inside your um satin or your dreamcast it's got like yeah. a l- little selector so you can pick which system you want to put it inside yeah. and there's no um, soldering or anything like that you just 
open it up and just put it in. You yeah, so that, that's yeah. kind of the um, the the thing about this. It's much better than previous solutions. Whereas before, you might have had to solder cables and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, apparently, it's actually auto detects which console it's plugged in, so you don't even have to change any jumpers. So you put it in, um, it will automatically detect it's in the system, plug and play completely. And then it's got a few adapters on here as well. For example, you can put um, an SSD hard disk in there. It's got um, a USB port on there, so you can put a thumb drive in. There's a, a micro SD card adapter there too. Um, and it will auto region patch your games as well, so you can play games from all different regions without you know, having to patch your games themselves. And essentially what you do is you just dump um, red dump or TOSEC images. It can be um, CDI images, GDI, CCD, MDF, BIN, ISO, and Q images as well. So what you do is you essentially just dump them all on an SD card or an SSD, put it in there. You've got zero seek times because there's no laser or head moving around. It can support multi-disc games as well. So if you've got games that come on more than one disc, then... It will do those. It also supports stuff like the MPEG card, the Action Replay, um, Saturn RAM carts as well. And it's also compatible with stuff like the Pico PSU and, you know, the, the kind of third-party power supplies that you might have in there. So essentially, it's a plug-and-play solution where you can have all of your Saturn or your Dreamcast games on an SSD or an SD card, put it in there, and you can just play everything direct from the menu. Oh, wow, that's awesome. That yeah. is unbelievably good. Like, And the fact that it supports, you know, the power supply units and stuff there's a lot of issues with saturn games and power supplies and you know incorrect games with incorrect power supplies this this is really well thought out product here it's a huge solution for like saturn as well for sega saturn as well because some of the games in their library are so expensive i i stand by i've said it before sega saturn is like the most expensive games console to collect for as well so that's awesome that they've made that now, it's not going to be cheap. Um, it's coming out in June, they reckon, at the moment. It's in testing right now. It's going to be €182, Euros, which, okay. if you think about it, I mean, these flashcards are never really cheap at the best of times. But you've got to think, I mean, this is kind of, it's very specialist hardware. They're not going to be manufacturing like a million of these. And obviously, with the smaller scale production, your price per unit goes up with each one. But I think the fact you look at this and it, it comes in, they've got like a nice box. It's all nicely designed for it as well. It looks like a really high quality product. It's not kind of like, you know, handmade or anything like that. They've actually done like a small run of these, I imagine, by the looks of it. And the fact that it can work on two different systems as well, that kind of, if you can have two different libraries, I'm not sure quite how easy it's going to be to kind of go between your systems. I imagine if you had like your uh, Saturn and your Dreamcast side by side with no screws inside, you could just kind of open it up and pull it out and put it in the other one. <laughs> so, Something you would do. <laughs> well, yeah, to be fair, I probably would. So for 182 euros, when you get two systems out of it, you know, despite that kind of inconvenient changing over, that kind of does make it seem a bit more reasonable, I think. So, I mean, I've seen like Everdrives and stuff for, that go for like 150 euros just for one system. And you kind of tied mm. to that, that console and that one only. And so this seems cool. really fast as well because it's like supporting all the really fast kind of interfaces like the, there's going to be high-speed SATA access and stuff. So I don't think there'll be any lag with games. Actually, it's probably going to be a much nicer experience without uh, game loading times. Yeah, because that's one thing we've all played, like, you know, Dreamcast games and you hear the laser crunching away and everything. It can take a bit of time. So uh, it's got an FPGA on here as well. So, you know, it's, it's a really fast little system. So that's going to be out in June. Um, I was saying to Joe before, I sent you the link and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to buy one of these. It does look really good. <laughs> just, oh, just right, for the Best thing you've shown me in years, mate. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on that, absolutely. Now let's talk about Mario Maker 2. Now, um, I do love playing that on my Switch to sit down. I'm terrible at making maps. And uh, Joe, actually, you're a bit of a whiz on Mario Maker. I was. I've not played Mario Maker 2. I, I really enjoyed Mario Maker 1. Uh, me and my wife played it 
so much and we would you know go into work like I'd be at work and she'd make me a load of levels and I'd come back and play them and vice versa so I really want to get my hands on number two but even more so now that the world maker creations online so it's the world maker has come out from Mario Maker 2 which just looks amazing from you know just first glance straight away like it's blowing me away you know I think a lot of people might have it on their system but not actually know because it was with the latest update so Mm. uh, to access it uh, go to the course maker and then press the menu tab and there should be World Maker there. And it's for that little section where you're basically going around the Mario world and then you're selecting different levels. Do you think people are going to make some mental hacked worlds as well that are going to be really hard to navigate? I'm tempted just as soon as we've done filming this, you know, recording this, just to go and buy it straight away because I really just want to kind of like make my own worlds to then just play through, if that, you know, like just have 10 in a row or something like that. Uh, and what I really like as well is it's not just like, oh, you just go from level one to level two to level three. You can put all your little hammer bros, you know, you can put the uh, the pirate ship in there, you can put your ghost house in there and everything like that, um, which I think is absolutely amazing. And like you say, I don't think many people will know about the update um, because I've not really seen anything about it until you sent it over to me today. And also what you can do is um, you can share it online as well, as you can yeah. with the levels, so you can share yeah. your whole world, and I guess that's a better way to package it, if, you, if you've yeah, got yeah, a world with all your levels there, you know? Yeah, because you're kind of like making them a game, a Mar- you're making them like, like oh, yeah. here's my version of Mario to go complete, if that makes sense, you know, and then you give it to Dan, and it probably gets, you know, stuck on the first level. <laughs> Which, I, I can't even complete my own levels in Mario Maker. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, I've got Mario Maker 2. I haven't tried the World Maker yet. Like you said, I mean, it's probably been updated on my Switch and I haven't played it for a couple of months. Um, but I'm going to dig it out again and play it. But it looks like it is kind of hidden in a submenu, which, you know, it's not that obvious if you didn't know where to look. But apparently mm. on there, there is kind of eight different themes for your world. So you can have like, you know, ground theme, sky, there's underground forest, desert, volcano, snow and space as well. And I think you, you did nail it there that really you, you are making your own entire Mario game there. Yeah, because of like on Mario Maker 1, you'd load up the level, then you'd play it, and then you load up another level and play it. But on this, it just looks like you can load up like a world of however many levels or whatever, however many worlds, and you literally can just sit back, kick back for the day, and just play all these levels. If you're good enough, obviously, to make them, like I probably, you know, I'm not that good at it, but I think it just puts like a new dynamic to the game. Now, there are some rules in here as well. They reckon that um, each sub world within a super world can hold five courses. Including okay. the, the end castle as well. That, that can make up, so essentially, you can have 40 co- courses per world, which is, oh, okay. you know, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? That's a decent Yeah, amount. that is a lot. That is a lot. Well, looking at these, uh, actually, it does say worlds can only be played in local multiplayer and not online with others over the internet. Okay. So there is some I think maybe you could share the world, but you can't, like, invite other people into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. But, I mean, for me, that's, like, perfect couch play again. You know, I sit there, spend the time making it, chuck it over to a friend, chuck it over to my wife or whatever. And then what? And it's just exciting to watch them play it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people are kind of saying from what I've seen on social media about this over the last couple of days, it's kind of reinvented the game. It's kind of given mm. them, you know, a, a lot more scope rather than just a lot of those levels. I don't know if you played any of the levels online on Mario Maker 2, but some of them, I mean, I, I'm not the most incredible Mario, Mario player in the world anyway, but so I think some people just make them intentionally solid so no one else can do it and they kind of get a bit of a, an ego boost out of knowing that no one can complete their levels, which kind of takes a bit of the fun out of it, especially if you've got kind of younger players on it, I guess. Yeah, it's about finding that right balance. When I used to play it online on the first one, it was either too easy or too hard yeah. sometimes. You know, it, like you say, it's just 
stupidly hard or literally just you just breeze through the level so and it's cool that they're still doing big updates for it as well because i mean i guess they didn't have yeah. to everyone's already kind of bought it probably wanted it so yeah well i've not bought it so <laughs> <laughs> there you go another copy sold in town it to me <laughs> Now, before we get into our chat all about Streets of Rage 4, the inside story with the guys who are behind it, we are going to give a little shout now to um, the people who we love most in the world. Let's give a huge thank you to the people who keep the Retro Hour podcast going week in, week out. And they're incredible people as well, because we know this, we'll hang out with them last weekend. These are our patrons. Now, on Patreon at the moment, we've got a little campaign that's running. Obviously, we appreciate that, you know, times are hard for everyone at the moment, and you might not have as much money as previously, but we've actually been blown away by everybody's support through these difficult times. And obviously the reason that we are doing this at the moment is because we do want to get our own retro hour studio built, hopefully a bit later on this year, to enable us not only to do more content for you, do extra podcasts, to get video as well that we want to do, but also to give us a lot more flexibility, just getting guests and everything too. And obviously make sure that the show is really good sound quality. We haven't got, you know, like a... Ravi's cat meowing in the background or uh, jo- Joe's <laughs> wife shouting that dinner's ready from up the stairs. So uh, when we get in our studio, it'll be, it'll be thanks very much to you guys. Now, let's give a big thank you to a few more supporters this week for backing us on Patreon. Of course, you will get a mention on a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, thank you so much to Kilson, Martin Williams, Reed Philpott, Magnus Logie Magnuson, and Andy Elliott who all backed us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, it is really easy. We've got a few different tiers on there. Pick the one that suits you best. I mean, you can start from, like, you know, the price of a cup of coffee a month. It's not much at all. And obviously, anything we get is going to help ensure that this podcast has got a future. Help us do more content for you guys as well. And just keep this show the quality that we want to keep it at. So you'll find that on our website at theretrohour.com. Click on the supporters tab and then you can back us on Patreon. And of course, you can join us on our next Patrons Hangout that is coming up in a couple of weeks. All the details will be on there as well. Right now, let's get into the story of the biggest new retro game around at the moment and one that we've been loving. This is so good. Streets of Rage 4, the inside story, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guests. Now we are so hyped about the new instalment in the Streets of Rage franchise, Streets of Rage 4 that is finally here and we are joined by a couple of the guys who are behind it. I've got uh, Cyril Imbert and Ben Fiquet on the line right now. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, guys. Hey, thank you. Thank you, hello. Now, before we get into um, the development of Streets of Rage 4 and how it's come about, I thought it might be quite interesting just to kind of get a bit of background on you guys. I mean, we'll start with you, Cyril. What's kind of your earliest gaming memory then? Where did it all kind of start for you? For me, it started with uh, the Master System 2. Um, That was my first console uh, way before I had a computer. Um, So that would be my first memory. And of course, that goes with that uh, Alex Kidd. Uh, which was my first game ever. Um, and then from there, that's why I was more a Sega kid, because uh, I don't know why exactly, I don't remember exactly why my parents uh, like gave me that console in particular. But then from then, I was more a Sega kid than a Nintendo kid. And then after that, I, I started to play a lot of games and uh, having more consoles after that. But yeah, that was really my, my early um, souvenirs of, of video games with uh, the Sega Master System. And what about you, Ben? Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, I grew up in the countryside and we didn't have much access to many consoles. So Master System uh, with Alex Kidd was a, uh, one of the first gaming consoles I had. But I, I think I think I had the Atari at some point because my parents were holding uh, like 
prizes for uh, local bingo or something. And we opened the console uh, and we played the, the, the one of the prizes, which was the Atari something. Well, Cyril, I want to talk a bit about Dotemu, the company, um, because I think what you guys have been doing over recent years has been incredible. You you focus on retro games for modern systems. So what's kind of the history of the company and what are your, your aims? So basically, the company was created uh, in 2007. So it's quite a long time ago by two, two guys... Uh, from France, two engineers, uh, they, they created the company at the time because the mobile gaming industry was just starting and uh, you, you could start to play some cool games on mobile, but there was absolutely no retro games back in the days on, on mobile. So you couldn't play all the classics, whereas we knew at the time that it was possible to actually uh, run those games on mobile. So uh, that's, that's, that was pretty much the, the kind of the first uh, aim of the company was to bring retro games, arcade games to mobile. Uh, since then, the company evolved. We started to work for other companies as a work for our company, specializing in emulation, uh, reverse engineering. Um, then we started to publish our own titles, um, not only uh, making them, but also uh, taking care of all the marketing, focusing mainly on mobile, but then PC came into. And, and at some point uh, in 2014, I, I bought the company from these two guys, Romain and Xavier. We're still uh, very good friends, and they actually have another company, and we work together. But uh, from then, I, I really wanted to to bring the the concept of re- like uh, having a retro gaming specialized company to the next level. And so we started to consider as well console markets, uh, even if there was already some retro games back in 2014 in the console market. I thought they were not often really well taken care of, and also. Uh, there were some features that would be really cool to see that were missing, and also simply some some uh, licenses that were not there uh, on PC or on console. So we wanted to go a bit further to go search for bigger licenses, uh, and also not only do uh, adaptations, but also remasters, remakes, and sequels. We started to uh, sign projects like a Titan Quest on mobile, because we're still doing a bit on mobile at the time, uh, which was a big project for us. Uh, also bringing back uh, its origin, uh, which was a great JRPG, but bringing it back on as many uh, platforms as possible. Back in the days, we were also doing Final Fantasy VII on PS4, uh, the original game, not the remake, but we knew about the remake already back in the days. And uh, yeah, and then um, basically Ben and Omar from Lizard Group came to me back in the days uh, with uh, the idea of making a remake of Wonder Boy The Dragon's Trap, uh, the third Wonder Boy in the Wonder Boy series. Uh, and I was exactly perfectly in line with what I wanted to do with Dotemu uh, at that time. Uh, and the project they had in mind was absolutely amazing. And so that, that's what we did. And we launched it in 2017 and it was a very, really good success. So um, it was awesome collaboration and we're super happy about it. And it also validated kind of our strategy uh, from back then. And we also thought about doing sequels. So we did the first sequel of a game called Peng Adventures. Um, and then after that, we continued on, on this path. Uh, we signed the uh, Windjammers. Um, we, we launched the first one as a remaster, but uh, we're now working on the second one as a sequel. We're doing Streets of Rage 4 again with Lizard Cube and Dark Crush. Uh, and we signed lots of other projects then, but I can't talk about it right now. <laughs> oh, wow. So uh, you mentioned a lot of fantastic games that you've brought back there. Lots of classics like Wonder Boy. Uh, you also worked on Double Dragon and R-Type. How do you guys go about choosing what game to update next and like what's the process behind choosing it? So um, it can come from different sources, but uh, basically I would say that uh, we, we have like this huge document with like a list of licenses that we all like and would like to bring back. 
there's like probably 300 titles there. And those games, they come from either like internally, like um, the team would say, hey, like I remember this game, it was super awesome. It would be great to bring it back in that form, like a remaster or remake or sequel or whatever. And then we have families as well, or friends that say, hey, like, oh, yeah, I know you're doing that. Have you ever heard about this game? Um, or even like people in the industry, you know, when they meet us, they talk about different things. And uh, yeah, and, and so it's mixed between our, our own like uh, uh, pleasure, I would say, and also other people, uh, you know, like ideas. And then we kind of sort it out in, in terms of like what's simply possible to do, because we know some licenses are just impossible to get. Other licenses are possible, but does it make sense to bring them back? Like, will enough people will be interested uh, beyond like the people that actually gave us the idea or ourselves? Um, so that's the question that we ask ourselves. And, and from the conclusion, if if it's worthy and if we feel there's something and it and it really makes sense, then we go for the to, to start searching for the IP owner um, and we present them what we have in mind. And if they accept, then we start set, setting up everything. Well, you were also behind the 20th anniversary version of um, Another World as well, which was one of my all-time favorite games. I, mean, I remember watching that animated intro on Another World awesome. when I was a kid and my jaw dropped. Tell us a bit about the project of bringing Another World back then and how you updated the game. So basically the project uh, started, uh, I think it was in 2010 or something like that. Um, but basically it was the idea uh, back in the days that the game would be a good fit for uh, mobile platforms. Uh, it had never been ported on the, on the mobile platform. So but we, the team at the time didn't want it to just bring it back, just wanted as well to do a full uh, graphical upgrade so it would look really nice on the mobile screens back in the days. And it would be easy to do that, you know, just with a like, swipe with two fingers on the screen. Um, and the, the, the job was fully supervised by uh, Eric Shai, uh, the original creator of the game. We have regular regular contacts with him. I, I've, I've seen him uh, last year. I've seen him actually at, in Boston recently. Um, super, super cool guy, super, like, for us, it's, it's a legend as well. That was the original project. And since then, since that mobile version that we kind of, like, updated the original version with, like, a new menus, new UI, new options, um, we, we continue to improve that version and bring it to new platforms as, as they come. The, the latest one being uh, the Switch version, which came out last year, uh, actually. And uh, that's the opportunity as well to do new physical editions, which is always cool. Uh, we did a collector edition for Another World on Switch. Um, so it's always like a new occasion to get this Another World box, you know. Uh, and again, to work with uh, Eric, which is always cool. I really appreciate the fact that you put more save points in the game as well, because the original was brutal. Right. Yeah, it's, it's really hard game. So yeah, that was a complete necessity to do that. That's fantastic. I always love it when like the physical copies come out again as well, like you said, for the Switch. So I uh, really appreciate that. So Ben, um, what's your background with graphics then? Uh, well, I'm um, trained in uh, fine arts in uh, two different schools, uh, one in Lyon, which is called Emile Cole, And after that, I went to an uh, animation school called uh, Les Gobelins in Paris, uh, which is a very fine uh, animation school, very, very, very known international, internationally. <laughs> After that, I started by doing video games, actually. I started with Omar, which became my associate uh, at Lizard Cube. Uh, we worked on a game called uh, Salt Bubbles, uh, which was a, a Nintendo DS game. And, uh, and uh, I was uh, acting as an art director on that, uh, mainly because I was the only artist. Uh, and I did 
many things. I worked in London for about two years uh, in animation studios. Uh, I, I've done uh, comic books uh, of my own. I've been working in animation studios in Paris. And uh, at some point, uh, we reconnected with Omar. And uh, he said to me he wanted to make a remake of Wonder Boy 3, which was one of his favorite games. So uh, I started doing some mock-ups and uh, at, after like few months, uh, we had a prototype and uh, everything just just kind of rolled from here. And uh, uh, we had a prototype, we went to DotMU, uh, we had the license from Sega and everything. And uh, and now I'm fully dedicated to, uh, to, to making video games at LizardCube. You know, when you're looking at those classic titles, obviously it was all kind of low resolution pixel art back then. How do you go about like kind of translating that and updating the style for the modern HD systems then, Ben? Well, it's a, it's a matter of uh, personal taste, I think. Uh, it's every, every game that you want to remake and you want to, to make it in HD, you have the prism of your own view, uh, what you like and what you can draw and when you, what you like to draw and uh, and it's very difficult because this is what I wanted to do and gladly uh, people were very happy with the graphics. I think Streets of Fresh 4 as well. Uh, but it's uh, very challenging each time because uh, you start with few pixels. It was easier with Wonder Boy because Wonder Boy was like a master system title and this was very 8-bit uh, at its core, and uh, you didn't have much, so I could go very far from the original material uh, and not uh, shock anybody. But with Streets of Rage, it's harder because the resolution was higher, and people have a particular view of what they, they think they, they saw at the time. Uh, so uh, you try to put your own artistic background into the graphics, but in the same time, while respecting the, the license and trying to have something close or as close as you can to the original games. When developing the game, Cyril, are you in contact with like the original developers much? Do they have much say in what goes into the games? Um, so in general, we always try to be in contact with the original developers and the original creators. Um, that's really... Just because we like it, you know, like that's a kind of an opportunity for us to meet with those people. Uh, so we'll try to do that uh, in any case, even if it's not useful. Um, but uh, yeah, usually it is. Actually, uh, usually it's uh, it's pretty useful because it gives us lots of insights. For example, one of the I, I would say one of the best collaboration that we're having um, uh, with the original creators uh, beyond maybe the one with Eric Shai and the one with uh, Jordan Mechner. Uh, which now is, is a bit uh, a long time ago, but the recent one is with the team from uh, Windjammers, the Data East team. And, uh, those guys are super cool guys, very, very nice, very welcoming, uh, very uh, you know open to our suggestions, uh, very encouraging. And so we, I, I met them uh, in Japan several times. Every time they're very happy to see uh, like a, a young team taking care of their license and, and, you know, kind of like continuing the work that they have been doing 20, 25 years ago um, when they were themselves younger, you know, um, and just like exchanging with our team, exchanging with their team, 
uh, you know, like they, they give us feedback, which are super cool. Sometimes it reminds them of very cool, you know, like stories from back in the days. And so it, it kind of makes a parallel be between our story uh, and their story. And so we can really share something unique um, through time, kind of. For example, so I met with, uh, you know, back in the days when uh, they were making um, OST for games. Uh, in many cases, they had their own band uh, playing for the music of the game, which was the case of Konami, for example, um, or Data East. And Data East has, had a band, um, and the lead, uh, the lead member, the frontman of the band, uh, Atomic Aneda, Hamada-san, um, is a, a very, very awesome bassist, like a very cool rock guy. And I met him several times in Tokyo, and we talked about the music uh, of back in the days, so how they were making it. And, and actually he's doing the music for Windjammers 2 uh, with us, uh, with real instruments, like back in the days, recorded in studio with his old buddies from the Data East band. They still play together, but now they we gathered them again so they can do new music for Windjammers 2 20 plus years after the original one. And they're really liking it and we like it a lot as well. Uh, so it's it's awesome. Yeah, we always try to. For Streets of Rage, we are, uh, we're in contact with Yuzo Koshiro um, and, and his sister as well a bit, but uh, mainly with uh, Yuzo, um, Koshiro, and Motohiro Kawashima, uh, which were more involved into the, the sound design of the, the original Street of Rage, which is a huge part of the original Street of Rage, of course. Um, and yeah, it's doing really well. It's super nice to see them interact with the game, ask us questions, uh, give us, again, like stories about development from back in the days. Um, and when they're happy with what we're doing, it's such a huge reward for us and such a really an honor to, to be able to, to do that because those, those guys are super talented and they, they made video game history. So, yeah. Well, we'll get fully into Streets of Rage 4 in a minute. I mean, just before we do, I mean, in general, when you're doing updates of classic games, do you find there's like a bit of a balancing act between nostalgia and modern expectations because i always think that must be a bit of a, a nerve-wracking kind of thing to do you know because essentially you're you're playing with people's memories aren't you so is it a bit of a balancing act yeah well yeah absolutely uh, it, it's a bit selfish but we think about us as well in, in a sense that we're we're fans ourselves you know so we kind of try to make the games that we would like to see you know as fans of those license and those games um and so yeah, it's a, it's a balance, of course, because the idea be, be behind all this is to not only, um, you know, bring those licenses back just, you know, like to give them a second life, but it's also to kind of transfer to newer generations so that they don't forget where video game is coming from. And if you only rely on nostalgia, you won't get those, those, those younger gamers, those younger crowds playing your game. So it's really important um, from lots of different point of views, but if I might so, say, I think, I think sometimes the player's memory is a bit fuzzy. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, so yeah, basically, it's really important for us to uh, to bring novelties in in what we're doing, so that we don't don't only address uh, the original fans like us, but also potentially newer newer crowds that can discover those games um, and also enjoy them. And maybe those younger crowds will be the you know the designers, the artists of tomorrow. Uh, and, we, and if we can have a bit of influence and we can, if we can buy our work, transmit uh, those, you know, like those ideas, those designs from back in the day and the way the games were make, made in back in the days, then that's great. So it's always a balance between, you know, giving satisfaction to, to satisfaction to fans like us and like the fans all around the communities that we work with, 
but also trying to bring in more people that never heard about those games. And of course, a sequel is the best way to do that because it's a completely new game. But you can also do that with a remake or with a simple remaster uh, if it's well if it's well done. That's awesome. And uh, me and Dan, we love the fact that you guys have released uh, new versions of uh, Raiden and uh, R-Type. And we don't get enough shoot-em-ups these days. Are any are there any other genres that you guys want to bring back? Uh, well, the point-and-click, point-and-click, especially uh, at the starting of the indie gaming era, was not a huge uh, genre that, that was here. So we're, we're glad we brought back some cool point-and-clicks um, back in the days um, and shmups as well. I don't see for now any, well, beat them ups, you know, like beat them ups is, are not a huge thing nowadays. They used to be, at some point, you had Castle Crushers, you have some, some beat them ups that had some success, but it's not that often uh, in the last mm. years. So that's, that's one of the genres we're really happy to bring back. And it's cool because you see, like, a, you see a River City Girls, for example, that came out not that long ago. It's a kind of like a, you know, common movement that, that comes back, and it's really cool to be part of that. Some, I would say some genres are harder to sell than others, and the, the crowds are completely different. The people you address as well, as I'm thinking about the shmups, uh, shmup community, for example, is very, very, very picky and not a huge community, but they'll buy every single game that comes out. Um, so it's a completely different way of approaching um, a project for a shmup or for a point and clip, for a beat them up, uh, for adventure game. It's always different, and that's why also uh, it's, it's very interesting to work on retro games because you never get bored of doing the same thing all the time. It's always different projects, different kind of fans, different kinds of communities, and it's super awesome. Our co-host Ravi, who's um, not on the show at the moment, but he uh, he was looking through your website a bit earlier on, and he saw the fact that you'd updated Little Big Adventure, and that was like one of his favorite games ever. So he said, "I had to ask you about that." I mean, was that was that a fun project to work on? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, like same thing here. We worked with Frederic Renal, which was the original creator of the game. A super cool guy, very talented as well. He really made the early days of the industry. Um, a little big adventure is like for many people, it's huge game in their gaming life. Um, I remember that's one of the first game I had on my PC. So yeah, it like it was pretty amazing what they did back in the day. So yeah, we just try to bring it back the best way possible with as many options as possible on different platforms so that uh, everyone can enjoy it. Without having to, you know, like to have a headache downloading an emulator or finding it somewhere, um, make it simple and efficient. You know, so people can relive the same experience. Um, yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, and we like the community behind uh, Little Big Adventure is huge, and especially in the UK, um, it's a huge community. We have like a Facebook page of Little Big Adventure. Every time we post something on there, like there's so many reactions. Like people are craving for a new Little Big Adventure, but uh, I don't know if it will ever happen. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Well, let's get into Streets of Rage 4. I mean, by the time this show goes out, the game will be available now. It would have come out yesterday. And obviously, we've been talking about it for about a year now. I think we've been really hyped for this release. I mean, Ben, were you a fan of the original games back in the day? Yeah, of course. I uh, I had um, Streets of Rage 2 at home, and with my brother, we, we broke like two or three controllers on the game, especially because you had the friendly fire on and uh, it was very hard as uh, two siblings not to fight each other uh, in the game and uh, outside the game as well. So for me, I uh, my first encounter with Streets of Rage was on the Game Gear. And yeah, I remember really well, that was my first game on the Game Gear, basically. I don't know if it's still the case, I don't have children, uh, but uh, 
Um, back in the days, you know, you had these kind of magazines with all the toys, you know, like from the, sh the, the shops or whatever. And I remember that the Game Gear was there and Streets of Rage was like in promotion. I was like, oh, I want this, you know, like uh, for Christmas or whatever. And that's what I had. And then I just played it like all the time. And I thought it was so amazing. Like uh, it was a bit violent, super cool, you know, like uh, very punchy. The, the only downside is that the Game Gear was very low on battery often, mm -hmm. but... Uh, I remember playing it at the, the backseat of my parents' car um, on long trips to the south of France uh, in the summer. And yeah, that's very, very cool souvenirs. Like the time was really passing fast with Streets of Rage. Then later on, I, I had it on the on the Mega Drive as well. Um, played it for Streets of Rage 2. I played it with friends as well at home. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that for me, that's a, that's a game that I was not really good at fighting games. Um, and, and I was not really patient back in the days. Video games really taught me patient over the years, but that was my early days, so I was not patient at all. Um, but I was way more patient with Streets of Rage than, than fighting games um, because it was co-op, basically. So it was easier not to get, you know, very angry at your friends <laughs> because they're better than you. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a game that really, I remember very, very vividly uh, things like sounds and, you know, like uh, tracks from the first and the second one uh, that's, that they're really deep in my memory um, and made, you know, like the, the way I, I approach games today as well, you know, my, my whole, the way I build my whole game, gamer life, basically. I think, I think it, it stands apart because uh, a lot of uh, beat'em up were very kind of grotesque and fantasy. And this one was more anchored to, to kind of the city and reality of uh, the gritty side of, uh, of uh, downtown or, or something like that, I think. So uh, Cyril, it's uh, been 26 years since Streets of Rage 3 came out. Why was now the right time for the fourth installment? Mm, <laughs> the right time would have been way before, I think. But, uh, <laughs> it was the time, that's it. You know, like there, there's the right time, the earlier, the better. Uh, it's just yeah. that you didn't have the occasion to quit more, uh, or even the idea, probably. Um, but uh, no, uh, uh, it's super cool that uh, we had the occasion to do that and not to wait too much, you know, like that it's, it hasn't been like a project in the air for too too much time, you know. I was, it started to become very real pretty, pretty soon. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, like there was no right time. Earlier would have been better, but then it wouldn't have been us. So I'm glad. <laughs> so does the story in Streets of Rage 4 pick up after Streets of Rage 3? Yeah, sort of, because um, uh, the, the story is set 10 years uh, apart from uh, the third episode. And I try to, to, to carry on kind of the vision that the, the, the city is important to the heroes and the city is important uh, as a background character, if I can say. Uh, it was kind of difficult to try to have the same mood and be a 2020 game because uh, the first games are very anchored to the 90s, uh, like a very um, uh, B-movie somehow of a fighting B-movie. And I wanted to bring something more. That's why I, I said the, the story 10 years apart because uh, with that time gap, you can... Uh, make the characters evolve a little uh, without being too close to the originals. And so you can try to 
to model the story uh, more to 2020s taste, I think. That's cool. So uh, obviously I mentioned there before, Cyril, about like the, you know, now being the time to release the game and stuff. And you mentioned, um, you know, if it had come out sooner, it might not have been you guys doing it and stuff. So Mm. with that in mind, how did the project kind of begin? How did it, did you get the ball rolling with it? Because obviously the rumours of Streets of Rage 4 have been around since the mid 90s. So basically we... um... We just had finished. We just had released Wonder Boy: uh, The Dragon Strap uh, with Lizard Cube uh, with Ben, um, and so I was like, okay, you know, like at Dodemu, we uh, always try to find new cool projects um, and also, uh, you know, like make more and more impact. So having more bigger and bigger uh, licenses uh, to propose to 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 to, to the gamers. Um, so the next step uh, was like, okay, so Wonder Boy was partially made in collaboration with Sega because they, they own part of the of the trademarks. Um, so I was like, we have kind of a history with Wonder Boy with Sega, even if it's very, very light because we didn't have a lot of contact. We had more contact with the original creator. Um, but I was like, okay, that, that would make sense, you know, to look out for a Sega license uh, because there are so many of them and that have lots of potential and haven't, haven't been, you know, back for quite a long time. And of course, as a Sega kid myself, and because I had all, all this experience uh, with Streets of Rage back in the days, I was like, okay, that, that would be super cool to uh, to bring back Streets of Rage. I don't know if it's possible because that's one of the biggest licenses from uh, the, the Genesis, the Mega Drive, but uh, you know, we should try it out. And so at a party at, uh, at our office, uh, if I remember well, I started to talk about it to, to Ben. And actually, Ben uh, already had the idea as well and already had made some sketches of, of a potential sequel to Streets of Rage, for, to Streets of Rage. So that was perfect, you know, like um, we were in, in line with what should be done and, and I saw Ben's drawings and I was like, oh, that's fucking crazy, let's do that, you know? Um, and so from there we started to, you know, you know uh, polish the concept itself, uh, also think about who should work on this because, um, uh, you know, like uh, Ben was uh, handling all the, 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 art, the art basically, but uh, we needed like a full team, uh, not only uh, you know arts for the game. So we started to think about who should be involved on the project, uh, uh, what would should the project look like. And once we had uh, a very solid, I mean, like a very solid early concept uh, with arts uh, that Ben did at the day at, back in the days, um, I went to Japan. I managed to get a meeting with uh, the right people at Sega. Um, presented the project and yeah, well, a couple of weeks later they said they were interested and from there we started to talk a bit a bit more uh, in depth with them and, and then it was a thing. Well, how much involvement did Sega have in the development of it then? Did you have to kind of run ideas by them? How, how hands-on were they? Uh, they were pretty cool. We were really used to do that at Dodimu. That's what we do basically. Uh, so that's what we've been doing for 10 years. Uh, we're really, really used to work with IP owners. We work with very, very picky IP owners uh, on projects like Final Fantasies uh, with Square Enix, for example, or with Konami. Uh, we recently uh, did uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night on mobile, for example. Um, so we used to rework really with uh, Japanese IP owners that are that have a very high level of standard. Um, so we're not really afraid, uh, but it's always, you know, you never know uh, well, what's, what level is going to be. Uh, how much involved they, w- they will want to be. And in the end, Sega has been very supportive. 
Um, they really just sent us feedback every time we were sending them builds and arts and stuff like that. Feedbacks that really made sense and that was in line with what we were thinking as well. Uh, so all in all, it was really smooth, really. That's great. And uh, Ben, did you have much access to like original design documents and development notes from Sega from the original games? Yeah, well, <laughs> when I started working uh, in my spare time on, the, on, on developing the game, I, I looked at uh, everywhere, uh, everything I could find. And uh, since this is like a really pretty popular game, uh, you had a lot of interviews, uh, translated interviews, a lot of uh, original game documents uh, translated as well, uh, which was very invaluable. And uh, uh, we had some art uh, that was sent by Sega uh, directly to us. Uh, but that was not something that was not already public. It was just a better resolution. And uh, yeah, uh, pretty much uh, everything was on the internet, basically. Uh, and a lot of interviews. And we didn't have much direct contact uh, with the original creators. Uh, so it was quite scarce, I think. But we worked also with uh, some... Uh, hardcore dedicated fans and they helped us because they, they knew uh, the games in and out, they knew the lore, they knew uh, everything that has been made uh, about the games. So uh, everything is like an aggregation of uh, everything really. Well, I love the art style of the game as well, but I know I have seen some people online who are like, oh, you know, wh- why isn't it like a pixel art game? Yeah. Instead, you've gone for like the, the hand-drawn style with Streets of Rage 4. How was that decision made and why? Well, first of all, because uh, this is what uh, I'm, I'm good at. This is what I like to do and what I like to see. Uh, and I don't think this is like, it would have been very fitting for... Uh, a game like Street of Rage 4 to still be in pixels because uh, while some hardcore fans are screaming that they are missing their pixel art, uh, I think a lot of people are happy to see some uh, HD version of the characters, of the of the backgrounds. And uh, this is, I don't know, this is something that you have to own at some, fo- at some point because uh, you always artistically have to make decisions. I, I knew... Somehow, uh, I mean, for me, that it will be uh, beautiful and it will be uh, pretty. So I think uh, I think a lot of people are really enjoying the new art style, and uh, of course, some people are uh, like they, they they want their pixel art, they want to have something else. Some people don't see it as uh, appealing; they want 3D or something else. Uh, but anyhow, you have to. Uh, just have to, I don't know. This is just what I want to do and what I can. I know I can do. Yeah, on on, uh, on my side, uh, I mean, like uh, I've been being working on Wonder Boy uh, and seeing Ben's art in motion. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Um, ben is really talented, and that would be a shame not to choose to do that when you have the opportunity of doing that. You know, like. Uh, there's, there are not not a lot of games out where you have this level of quality in animation and and you know character design and it just feels so amazing to play a game that looks like that. 
So of course, pixel art can be done really well. You have some amazing pixel art artists around, but it's a bit more common, right? So uh, I don't know. It was just like a super nice occasion to do something a bit different and to do it really well because Ben was behind it. So it just made sense. And again, like you can't satisfy everyone. It's impossible. Um, it's, it's, it's a really like artistic choice. And I'm sure even the, the most skeptical people, when they have the game in hand and they see it on their screen with all those colors, all those characters, all those details, and all those beautiful animations, I, I'm sure they'll change their mind. Well, it changed mine because I was sceptical at first when I first saw it. But I played the game last night and it looks absolutely amazing, I must say. Um, so something else which is amazing is the soundtrack. And the Streets of Rage uh, soundtracks are legendary. Uh, and you did get the legend of Yuzo Koshiro uh, to do the music on the new game. How did you get him involved? And was he excited to do another Streets of Rage game? So it was really hard to get him into the project at first um, for many different reasons, I think, that really makes sense. Um, but it's just that Streets of Rage, I, I think, for Yuzo Koshiro is something very, very important. And there has been many, many attempts to do new Streets of Rage with or without him. Um, so I think you really needed to be reassured that it was in good hands, that we were going to do something faithful with lots of cool ideas and something very respectful of the original uh, uh, games. Once he knew that, uh, and once we had the occasion to show him, he, he did a, a concert uh, in Paris um, last year. Um, mm. And that's when we met him for the first time uh, with Ben and Jordi, the, the game designer. And that was thanks to um, Brave Wave, uh, Alexander Aniel, which is um, uh, working with lots of different Japanese composers, had Koshiro contact and managed to contact him and organize a meeting in Paris. And that was the occasion to show him the game and, and, and show our faces as well and, and meet him. And that's when he started to say, okay, that's, that looks interesting. I might be interested to work in that. But the game was already in development for a long time. So there was lots of interrogations on our side. Like, so, so like, what if he doesn't work with us? What do we do then? Uh, all that kind of stuff. But in our mind, we're so confident about the quality of a project that we knew he would like to be involved at some point. He, he would be interested at least. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, from that point, we started to have um, um, lots of conversations about what what he should do and how he should do it and what he'd like to do and, and what he likes about the project and everything. And that, that's how he got involved more and more and to, to take uh, in the end, a very central role in the, in the soundtrack. Uh, Streets of Rage is a lot about music. Um, that's what make, that made the game famous back in the day. So right from the beginning, we really had this idea in mind saying like the music of Streets of Rage 4 needs to be super special. It needs to sound like a Streets of Rage game. It needs to sound uh, like a sequel of a Streets of Rage game, but at the same time, it needs to sound like a modern game. It needs to sound, you know, like something truly in our times, even if it has the spirit of a Streets of, game, Streets of Rage game. So that's why we, we had this philosophy of having one main composer, um, who is Olivier de Rivière, who's a, a very, very talented French composer that composed uh, OST for uh, games like Play Tale or uh, Assassin's, Assassin's Creed. Um, but it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's uh, someone who really understands the, the, the direct link between gameplay and music. And um, that's why it was so interesting to work with Olivier. And we needed to have something that would put harmony in the whole OST, right? Not something that would be like one artist there and one other artist there and everything, 
or just Yuzo Koshiro because Yuzo Koshiro was it's, it's the spirit of the original games, but we also took, want to bring something new. So Oliver was kind of like doing all this harmonious OST and on very, very strong particular moments, we would have um, uh, other artists coming in, either artists from the East Original composers are very strong, like the main theme is from Yuzo Koshiro. Uh, very important bosses are made by Motohiro Kawashima, for example. Uh, some very important themes from the game are made by the original composers. So, so you can still feel the spirit and, and also listen, listen to, the, to the sound that they can make today. But we also brought in other artists from back in the days, like Yoko Shimomura, that was working for Capcom back in the day, so there were kind of competition with Yuzo Koshiro, as well as uh, Yamagishi-san, who worked on Ninja Gaiden. All of these very cool sounds from the 80s, 90s, bringing back from today, but with their, their new touch, their touch from nowadays. So that was for the kind of like Japanese spirit, spirit from the original games. But we also brought other, other artists from the West, artists that worked on indie games, like Hotline Miami with Scattle, for example, um, uh, or and, but also artists that never composed for video game video games because we wanted because it's about music we just didn't want it to have people that were kind of like for, form, formated for video game music or people that would kind of think about it kind of out of out of the box so so Switch of Rage four would sound like an album not only like video game music but also like a full album that you can play into you know or that you can play with. Um, so that was really the, the, the whole the whole goal of, of all this work. And in the end, we end up with around 10 art, different artists working on the game. Um, and but, but everything kind of now sounds, as, at least for me, and I hope it did for you too, harmonious. You know, it, it feels like it belongs to the same game, but at the same time, it's always a surprise because it's a new touch. It's a new kind of sound. And that, that was the spirit of the, the original games as well. Absolutely. Well, I mean, other things that you've put in the game as well, I mean, speaking of new takes on... Streets of Rage. We've got some new characters in there as well, um, like Sherry and Floyd. Uh, tell us about the design decisions there then, and how did you come up with these new characters? I think we wanted to, to do something new, uh, because uh, the license always has been evolving. Uh, the, you have the recurring characters, which are uh, Blaze and Axel, uh, and, but each uh, time you add like... Um, uh, new character like Max or Skate in the second one or uh, Dr. Zan uh, in the third one. And uh, we wanted to bring something new, something that was more fitting to the time. And I think it was mostly driven by the gameplay needs. Like we wanted um, a character that was fast uh, for Cherry, uh, fast and uh, aerial. Uh, and I did... Uh, since uh, the story is set 10 years uh, apart from the third one, Skate uh, was not, in my mind, coming back with his world of skates, uh, fighting in the streets. This was cool at the time, but I don't think this is cool now. I thought uh, of bringing another uh, Hunter family member uh, to the party. And so I, I tried to to have more modernity uh, in a style, uh, uh, hence uh, the guitar and uh, maybe kind of grunge uh, style. So I went from there uh, for, for Cherry because uh, every character is kind of connected to the series. Uh, Floyd, for example, is connected because he's a disciple of uh, Dr. Zan. 
and he has like raw, uh, cybernetic arms and and for him he wanted a brawler but a brawler not like Max which is a wrestler from the 80s 90s wanted a brawler that was grabbing from far and also able to do different combos like yeah, we wanted a brawler that would be able to grab two two enemies at the same time and that's why mostly it was driven by gameplay and after that uh, I, I tried to connect them throughout the, the, the story and the lore of the game. So you can also play as the original characters and you can also play to the original soundtrack. Tell us more about that mode. How did that come about? Um, so, yeah, basically, um, because, you know, we are, we're working with God Crush. We're doing the programming. Um, they, uh, they, used, they, do, they did a game called The Streets of Fury, uh, which is a really cool game. Uh, it's visually uh, special, but uh, but it's super nice to play. And basically, they did this game because they're, they're just huge fans of beat them up games in general and Streets of Rage in particular. And they've been developing this game for a long time, just as a hobby, you know. Um, and so that means that they kind of developed a full engine uh, that was kind of ready to go when we started the project. Um, but at the start, so we had this engine. We had the possibilities of starting to work on level design, on some like gameplay elements. But uh, we didn't have uh, all the, the characters there or the animation because it takes quite some time to design everything by hand. Um, so at the beginning, um, they started to, to work with uh, sprites from the original games just to test the, the engine and test different gameplay elements. Um, and on the actual HD backgrounds and mixed sometimes with HD characters, uh, it looked cool. And, you know, like, I guess as fans, you know, um, the team also really wanted to be able to play those characters. Um, so we kind of like thought about it and say, hey, like, would it take lots of time and, and effort and resources to bring like most of the characters back into the game? Uh, because we were sure everyone would be super happy about it. And the, the answer was no, uh, it was really worth it. Um, it would need some work uh, because in the end, um, the game designer Jordi had to kind of rip frame by frame all the the arts from the original games, kind of really understand the animation mechanics, the hitbox where they are. So the the game feel is exactly the same. Uh, so reproducing that was a hard time, and sometimes reprodu- reproducing the exact same gameplay from back in the days was not cool at all anymore in an HD environment with like modern controls and everything. It was not really feeling really well. So some of the original moves and original game feel had to be modified to have a better fit to kind of like still feel original, but in a better way. Um, so there was lots of little like arrangements and little different modifications that have been done on, on the on the retro characters and also some additions. For example, uh, we brought in Streets of Rage 4 the, the fact that you can launch a superpower. It's called the star move. Um, but the retro characters didn't have that, right? Uh, so we had to create, like the team had to create some uh, from nothing. Uh, so now you have Shiva doing like a super final crash, for example. Uh, when you play with uh, with him, it's super cool, but it's something that didn't exist back in the day. But it feels it feels at the right place uh, on Streets of Rage 4, basically. Did you play the original games again for any inspiration and to kind of get a feel for them? Yeah, yeah. Um, you can yeah. check out on different uh, dev diaries that, that we did. Uh, the one on, on the game design, uh, you can see that uh, Jordi, the, the game designer on, on Tweets of Rage, uh, he actually has the game, uh, like the original games running 
on another screen at the same time as he designs the moves uh, and the way like uh, he's aiming for the for the new characters or the new retro character to to act in the in Streets of Rage Four. So it's very 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 tight connection between um, the the game feel of the old games and the new game feel because the idea was really to 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 nail it down like to have the exact same sensation of powerful punches, very reactive action, um, and intense action, I would say. So yeah, having, they, they were, it was ba- basically playing the old games while designing the new one. So uh, Adam Hunter is back as well, who's one of my favorites, uh, which is fantastic after he was absent from number two and three. Um, was this demanded by the fans and was it a hard secret to keep for so long? Yeah, it it was because I think at the beginning uh, we thought about not including him because he he was uh, uh, he was another playable character to animate and this is a ca- quite a long work uh, but uh, quickly uh, we knew that we had to implement him because uh, he's cool he's like. Um, he should have been there uh, all the time in the, all the original games, but uh, he was uh, forgot and uh, just appearing uh, in cinematics. And uh, and I mean, when we released the first uh, trailer, even even though we we knew we wanted to to add Adam in the game, uh, the outcry from the fans was very loud. Like it was very important for a lot of people to add Adam back. Uh, this is uh, at the end of the day, like it's cool. It's cool, and it's bringing something more uh, just by being here. Well, are there any more secrets in the game that you're looking forward to fans discovering? Then are there many like hidden Easter eggs and things that they're going to discover as a player? There is one particular thing uh, that I really can't tell anything about that's in the game that we never like uh, revealed, um, and that's kind of. Not, I would not say hard to find out, but it's not definitely not easy to find out. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to see people streaming the game and discovering that probably by, by accident at first. And it's going to be awesome. Like, I really want to see the people's reaction and people actually talking about it. Like, hey, I discovered that you can do that in Switch of Rage 4. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Oh, I really want to know now. <laughs> I'm on stage eight. <laughs> okay, okay. No, you should. Have, you could have seen it already. Oh, okay. All right, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to play it again. <laughs> so um, what's the uh, reaction been like from the fans so far after them seeing all the trailers? Uh, the, the reaction has been amazing. The more we progressed, the better it was. You know, it's, uh, it's always hard, uh, especially at the beginning, because um, the introduction of the new art style, the introduction... Uh, to the fact that uh, there was going to be new music as well, so many inter- interrogations, so many expectations from the fan, so many different different expectations from the fans. Um, but the, the more we progressed and the more we were convinced about the choices we made uh, during the production phase, um, and the better it was getting in terms of feedbacks. And yeah. but the, the most, the, the best thing was that every event that we did, we did a lot of them actually. Um, uh, you know, like video game events, um, people that were playing the game were really happy. You could see the smile on their faces. And so that would, that was giving us a lot of confidence in what we were doing. It was good that we started by announcing the game in uh, 2018. 
because it um, passed the initial reaction from many fans around the world, we managed to 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 convey our vision and to attract more and more players uh, uh, to what we wanted to do. Like, uh, for example, you said that uh, you were skeptical at the beginning when you saw the, the trailer, first trailer, and now you want to play more and you want to, to play the game. So uh, basically, it was a long process to convince all the fans and all the players that uh, uh, this was worth it and this was like a good game, not a, a, a cash grab. Absolutely. And, you know, like um, like we were saying earlier, Joe and I have had access to the game early, which we really appreciate, guys. We obviously had to keep it secret until now, uh, but we can say, you know, if you love Streets of Rage original games, this is a must-buy. I think everyone's going to love it. And uh, obviously it's available now on uh, PlayStation 4, PC, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, and Xbox Game Pass as well. We'll put a link in the, um, the show notes this week so everyone can go out and check it out. There's one final question um, to you, Cyril. If you've got a chance to work on um, another... Sega franchise is the one in mind that you'd like to work on next. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Uh, I I would love uh, to have the occasion uh, to work on a Shinobi game um, or a Golden Axe. That would be great. Uh, but uh, don't worry, we we signed other projects in the meantime. We didn't uh, wait uh, around, and we can announce them hopefully in the next uh, twelve months. Uh, and I think people will be very happy about those as well. So I'm, I'm not worried. We'll have to get you back on when you do. Yes, right. No problem. Cool. Well, great work on Streets of Rage 4, guys. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.